0: Take our Bibles now and turn to Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8, so we've had a few weeks off from looking at Isaiah, we're going to continue now going through the book and today we're going to be at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. Hear God's word. Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 1. Okay. Then the Lord said to me, This is Isaiah speaking, the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, we come to you this morning. You are the one who made us. We are the sheep of your pasture. We long to be shepherded by the great shepherd you the Lord Jesus Christ we pray that as we listen to these words from Isaiah that we would hear your voice Lord we pray that uh, through these words you would feed your sheep nourish us and strengthen us with the bread of life we pray that you would heal and bind up the wounded protect those who are in danger, correct those who are straying. And we pray that the sheep who are not of this fold, they would hear your voice and recognize it and follow you, and they would become part of your fold. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. We depend upon you and your grace for these things. So we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Are you a quiet person? Are you a quiet person? When you hear that question, you might think that I'm asking about how loudly you talk, but I'm not asking about the volume of your voice. Sometimes that's what we mean when we say someone is loud or quiet. I'm also not asking about how much you talk. Sometimes when people don't talk very much, you say that that person is a quiet person. But when I ask if you're a quiet person, what I mean is on the inside, internally, is your heart, your spirit, a quiet spirit. And I don't really even mean that in the sense that you might also think that I'm asking maybe, are you an anxious person? I'm not asking, are you anxious or are you calm? Uh, Related, maybe, but what I'm really asking is, are you gentle? Are you gentle? Are you gentle in your spirit? You probably know the verse in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, when Peter says that wives of women ought not to uh, seek after the external adornment uh, uh, to draw attention, but he says that women should seek after what is truly beautiful, he says, is a gentle and quiet spirit. Spirits should be gentle. And if you think that that is just uh, something for women, that that is a feminine uh, trait, well, just think about Jesus. Uh, as we've heard several times already in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus tells us that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so Jesus' heart, his spirit, is a gentle spirit. So Peter's not bringing that up for women just because it's something particular only for women to pursue, but it is for everyone to have. And so the question that I want you to think about this morning is are you gentle? Do you have a gentle spirit? Are you like Christ in being gentle and lowly in heart? Isaiah's uh, passage that he Uh, wrote for us today is talking about gentleness. And to talk about gentleness, he uses a metaphor, and it's the metaphor of rivers. I don't know what uh, your experience, really, of, of rivers is, but there are quiet rivers and there are raging, loud rivers. I look at the Hudson River, at least around here, it doesn't seem to be a very raging river. It seems like a pretty calm river for the most part, but then maybe you might go to Niagara Falls, and you look at the Niagara River at that part where it gets to the falls, and you can see there are great rapids, uh, there's obviously the huge falls, and you can see them all, the rapids all turning there, and then further down you go to this place called the Whirlpool, uh, the definition there of a raging river, because if you get sucked into that Whirlpool, you're not going to come back a dangerous place so there are quiet rivers there are raging rivers but uh, I've heard it said I don't know how scientifically accurate it is I've heard it said that it's really the quiet parts of the river where the current is strongest it's not on the top where you see all the rapids and all the ways where the current is strong I mean there's some strength to it But that deep underneath those calm waters are really the stronger currents. And that can be an image or a metaphor for the spirit, our spirit, for gentleness. That it's not the people who are loud and angry and who can push people around. Those aren't the strong people. But the strong people are actually the gentle ones. Their strength is hidden, in a sense. Their strength is what keeps their emotions and their anger and their rage under control so that they are calm in the way that they deal with others. And so it's this image, this metaphor of a river that Isaiah is going to bring up To teach us and get us to think about gentleness. So let's start looking at the chapter. First, in the first six verses, we see that the people of Judah despise the quiet river. They despise the quiet river. They like the raging river. They want to see the strength on the outside. So that's what we see in the first six verses. But... As we start with verse 1, we have a little bit of a story that sets up this whole metaphor of the river. Uh, Notice verse 1, the first word is the word then, and it's really just continuing the story of chapter 7. And I'll try to point out that there are a lot of similarities with chapter 7 and and chapter 8. And you'll notice the name Emmanuel keeps coming up here in our passage. But in the first uh, four verses, before we get to God talking about the river, we have another prophecy of another mysterious birth of another baby boy. So, the Lord says to Isaiah in verse 1 to take a large tablet. This is a, a writing tablet. Maybe uh, out of stone. So he takes a tablet and God tells him to write on it in common characters. Or your Bible might say something like, with the pen of a man. A a common uh, stylus, a common instrument of writing. And the whole point of this tablet is to be an announcement, to be a sign. Uh, Maybe it's sort of like the the sign that is on the lamppost that says, lost kitten, or lost dog, reward offered." Uh, So you put those signs on the pole so that the common person, just walk around, can read that easily in big letters and see what you're trying to announce. And so this tablet is meant to communicate something that is plain for everybody to see it's supposed to be written in common characters or with a with a normal tool in other words it's not a scribe's writing it's not fancy calligraphy it's not this strange font that you can find on Microsoft Word to to make your things look all strange and fancy no just make it plain so that the common person can walk by and know exactly what's going on. So he gets these instruments, and then God tells him, here's what you write. Belonging to, or maybe concerning, maher shalal Baz." We'll get to what those words mean in a minute. But he's supposed to write this tablet, this document, That has to do with this boy, this birth that we'll talk about. In verse 2, he's told to get reliable witnesses to attest that he wrote this. In other words, to attest for the fact that this was written before the event happened. Whoever and whatever Maher Shalal Hashbaz is, Isaiah, from the word of God, uh, wrote about him before those things took place. So this is attested, it's a, it's a legal document, it's as, as if Isaiah is getting this tablet notarized. This happened on this date. Now because we know that it's going to be about a son who's born, we could maybe think of this as something like a birth certificate, some sort of legal document. Belonging to this baby, or this is about this baby. It's an announcement. This baby is going to be born, or you could say he has been born. And he wants that written before it takes place. So what is maher shalal hashbaz? Well, if you know the Bible, you probably understand that names in the Bible have a lot of meaning. A lot of times the name will reflect what the parent wants the child to be, or maybe what the parent uh, just knows that the child is going to be. Uh, you know, The name of Jacob is very interesting because the name Jacob basically means supplanter or deceiver, and, and he, he grabbed the heel. That's also what the name Jacob means, and so it's a description of his birth, but it's also sort of a prophecy. He's going to supplant Esau, and he's also a trickster. So all of those things are wrapped up in the name Jacob. Some of you may know that the Puritans adopted that practice. Uh, A lot of the ones who moved to Massachusetts uh, at the beginning of the settlements, uh, they adopted this practice of wanting to name their children certain things that they believed God would then help those children grow up to be. So maybe you've heard some of these names. They turn out to be very funny. One family named their child Praise God Barebone. Another named their child Kilsin Pemble. And then last but not least, there is a record of a Puritan family naming their child Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So, poor kid. Uh, what does this name mean for Isaiah? This is Isaiah's son. Why, why is he told to name him this? Well, the name is four words, uh, basically repeating a phrase twice. Swift plunder, speed Spoil. So basically, again, repeating the same thing twice the, the plunder or the, the prey is going to happen quickly. So, whatever this is about, and we'll find out, whoever this is prophesying about, the boy is here by his name to be a sign that a group is going to be conquered and plundered quickly. It's going to happen soon. So he writes the document, he gets it notarized, then verse 3, he goes to the prophetess who is his wife, we don't know Isaiah's wife's name, she's just called the prophetess and she's a prophetess because she's married to the prophet. Not necessarily that she herself prophesies, but she's married to Isaiah. So she's just known as the prophetess. And it says, and she conceived and bore a son. Now notice that phrasing, very similar to chapter 7, verse 14 of the prophecy of the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But it's not the same mother. It's clearly not the same type of birth. It's not the same child. So the son is born, and then God tells Isaiah again, verse 3, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and now we get an explanation. Verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Notice, again, some similarities with chapter 7. Chapter 7, the prophecy of the Emmanuel child was that before the boy grows up to know how to refuse evil and choose good, Assyria is going to come and destroy Judah, King Ahaz. And here we have a parallel sort of prophecy, but a different boy and a different time period. This is going to happen sooner. So the the Emmanuel child is a faraway prophecy. This one is going to happen sooner. Before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the word avi, ami, dada, mama. When does a baby say dada or mama? Maybe around one year old. Before this baby turns one, the king of Assyria will come and conquer not Judah, but he will conquer Damascus and Samaria. And so this is what happened in 732 BC. Uh, So we don't know at what point between writing the tablet and uh, the son being born. We don't know how much time went by, but uh, the, the son conceived and then born and then growing up to be able to say mommy or daddy. That would have happened in this part of space probably of about two years. And so by 732 B.C., Assyria had come and conquered Damascus and conquered and defeated Samaria. And so this boy, in his existence, as he's walking around, bearing that name, he is the sign that God's word was coming true. Now, that's the boy. And his birth. And all of that is really the setup to the lesson. The lesson is in verses five and six. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the Son of Remaliah. We'll finish the verses and what's going to happen as a result, but but the lesson here. It's the problem that the people have refused the gentle waters of Shiloah? And before we get into applying the lesson to us, we still have to do a little digging, because now the question is, well, what are the gentle waters of Shiloah? Jerusalem got its water source from a spring outside of the city. And just a, a spring would have a little stream And this stream would be called the the river or the water of Shiloh. And maybe you know the story in John 9 when Jesus tells a blind man to go and wash (laughs) in the pool of Siloam. That's the same waters. The waters of Siloam would come uh, down at the the edge of the city and they would go down to this pool. And so people would uh, bathe at that pool. So that was Jerusalem's water source. A little stream coming from a spring outside the city. So the contrast here is with these great empires. Egypt had the big Nile River. Assyria has the Tigris River. Babylon has the Euphrates River. Even in our country... When uh, cities are settled, you you travel around the country, you notice that the bigger cities are by the rivers. St. Louis is a big city. Obviously, New York City is a big city. And uh, you could go on and on. A lot of the cities are established by rivers because there you have the source of trade and the source of crops being able to grow. And so Israel feels like they're just the the little kid on the playground always getting picked on. Because all they've got is this little stream trickling water for their city. They're not this mighty, vast empire. It might help to have a little analogy of us as America. We're kind of kind of one of the bigger countries, so maybe it's a little hard to put yourself into Jerusalem shoes. But imagine uh, someone in the Pacific Islands somewhere, and all they kn- know in their life is, is all these little huts that they live in on their island. But even on the Pacific Islands, they can see pictures and watch videos about America, and, and they get things, so they get that big Hollywood sign is what they see. They get to see pictures of the Empire State Building and Sears Tower. And that's why people want to go to America. Say, wow, America is great. America is big and powerful. And that guy in his hut, he say, I'm nothing. I just build these little huts. And he will despise his little hut. Wanting greatness. And so that's basically what's going on despising the littleness the gentleness wanting something more big and powerful so what are they doing when they rejoice over resin and the son of remaliah well I mentioned this in chapter seven but there's this political alliance and battles that are happening during this time and that's what this is all about remember that assyria is the mighty empire. Tiglath-Pileser III is this mean bad man who is marching across the known world crushing people, destroying cities. Assyrians are, are known for their cruelty. They're said to be the ones who invented crucifixion and the ones who try to come up with all sorts of cruel ways to torture and to win battles. And so Tiglath-Pileser is scary and he's marching across the country, across the the lands. He he is fighting against uh, Syria in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. He wants Egypt all the way in the south and so he's marching through. King Ahaz is scared and so his tactic is to team up with Assyria. His decision is, okay, I'm just going to Pay this guy off. Hope he doesn't come and kill us. But in the north, the kingdom of Israel, who is uh, the son of Ramaliah, and then Rezin, who is the king of Damascus in Syria, they decide to team up against Assyria. They want to fight against Assyria. And because Judah has allied itself with Assyria, now they're going to come to fight against Judah. So all of that was what chapter 7 was about. Now here, we have the fact that those two countries in the north, ready to come and attack King Ahaz in Jerusalem, but the big, bad, scary Assyria comes and uh, defeats them. Defeats those two countries in the north, as verse 4 was prophesying, was going to happen. So, King Ahaz is happy. Jerusalem is happy. Rejoicing over Rezin and the son of Remaliah means they are rejoicing in the fact that the people who were going to come attack them have now been defeated. So, if you're all confused by that, let me give you another modern analogy. Imagine. America is about to be invaded by China. China is coming and threatening to attack. So our nation decides to team up with Russia. Let's make an alliance with Russia to protect ourselves. You think that's going to be a good idea? Is that a very smart thing to do? No, it's not. Well, Russia and China get into a big battle. Russia defeats China. Everyone in America rejoices. The enemy that we were facing, China, has been defeated. But that's not good news. Because Russia defeats China. Russia is going to break their alliance with America. And they're going to come for America. They're coming for us next. Okay, so that's... The metaphor, that's the analogy of what's going on. They made an alliance with Assyria, the enemy. Assyria defeats the people who are going to attack them, but now Assyria is going to come and turn on them. So don't rejoice that Assyria defeated them because Assyria is coming for you next. In other words, Ahaz sold his soul to the devil. Ahaz teamed up with the enemy because of his lack of faith, because he wanted to protect himself because he was scared, and it's going to be his downfall. Now, the key here, I think, is the phrase that they refuse the gentle waters of Shiloh. There's a the word gentle is an important word. It's not just that Ahaz didn't have faith. But why didn't Ahaz have faith? Because that gentle river of Jerusalem was was a metaphor for how they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be gentle themselves. They were supposed to be gentle militarily, you, you could say, in their case, because it was God who was going to protect them. Ahaz forgot what Psalm 46 says, that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. See, Ahaz forgot that those gentle streams were the rivers of Zion. They make glad the city of God, that God was going to protect them. He wanted might over gentle. He wanted the raging river of Assyria over the gentle waters of Shaloah. Ahaz says, okay, look, it's nice all this talk about gentleness, but you know what? Gentleness is going to get me killed. I've got resin and pika Literally at the doorstep. I can't just sit around here and act like a gentle guy and just trust that God's going to protect me. You're crazy. I need might. I need the world's might. I need power. I need to show myself powerful. That's why I'm going to Assyria, because Assyria is strong and mighty. So I hope you understand the, the metaphor of what's happening here with this gentle River, Because this is how we think. This is the lesson, the spiritual lesson for us. We think gentle doesn't work. Gentle won't get you anywhere. If you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. You can't make omelets without breaking eggs. Gentle people don't get omelets, right? It's a dog-eat-dog world. If you want to survive or if you want to get ahead, then it's a dog-eat-dog world. Gentle dogs get eaten. Ahaz forgot, Proverbs 16.32, that he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Ahaz should have ruled his spirit. It would have taken him more strength to to rule his spirit and, and tell himself the truth of Psalm 46 that those gentle waters of Shiloah were protected by God and God would fight for him and therefore he could be gentle and he didn't need to go for the strength of the one who takes a city Tiglath-Pileser is not strong he's outwardly powerful but he has not the strength to rule his spirit and so we can think for ourselves we are gentle. I want to read to you a bunch of Bible verses, one after another, just so you see how often the Bible talks about how Christians should be gentle. So first, there's Matthew eleven twenty nine. Again, Jesus gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus in Matthew five verse five, blessed are the meek. Meekness is very similar. The meek shall inherit. The earth. King Ahaz, he didn't understand that. It was the meek who inherit the earth. Second Corinthians 10.1, Paul entreats, begs the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In Galatians 5.23, he says gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. In Ephesians four verse two he tells us to walk with all humility and gentleness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, he says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, for God may perhaps grant him repentance. Titus 3, verse 2, Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle, showing perfect courtesy towards all people. 1 Peter 3, the woman with gentle, quiet spirit, verse 4, 1 Peter 3, 15, be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you read what the New Testament says about gentleness, I bet that in your mind you can think of situations where you would say, I know Christians are supposed to be gentle, but if they're really gentle, then, then this is what's going to happen. Now, how do you correct people? People are just going to walk all over you. People are just going to uh, do whatever they want. You got to stand up for the truth. You got to fight for the faith. You got to contend for the faith. And yet, we see the Bible command us to do all these things contend for the faith, defend your faith, make a defense for the hope within you. Correct opponents. But how? With gentleness. Not with the Bravado, the outward power and strength that the world displays. And so our problem with gentleness is the same problem, really, at the end of the day, that King Ahaz has. When you're not gentle, when we aren't gentle. Why is it? Because we have a desire that we want fulfilled now. And being gentle isn't gonna get that for me that's what Ahaz thought and so that's what you think when when you're a parent and it's been a long day and you've corrected your children all day and then your toddler grabs a china plate and drops it on the floor and the china just cracks and you just blow up because you have a desire and you say, look, I have tried the gentleness thing all day, but this time I need to let my child know that what they did is really wrong. And so, and so I think that blowing up at them is going to get me what I want. When you're at work and they bring in some new policy, you want to write this scathing email You want to tell them exactly what you think about DEI or whatever. Why do you you want to write in such a scathing, angry way? Well, because you think in that moment, Christians have been gentle for decades. We've tried the gentleness thing. Look where it's gotten us in society. Look where it's gotten us in, in culture. It's time for Christians to stand up for themselves. And so your idea of standing up for yourself is your scathing email. So we have the same problem King Ahaz had. There is such a thing as righteous anger. The righteous anger is what Jesus, Jesus, the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, was the one who turned over tables. And so... When Jesus was righteously angry, he was not out of control. He was not insulting people. Uh, He was perfectly in moderation of all of his emotions. Jesus was gentle. So here's what we can think about. Are you gentle? Is this how you portray yourself? in your home, in relationships, in the world. Notice how many of those verses have to do with our witness to the world, showing courtesy to all people, correcting opponents, defending our hope. The witness of Christians in this world needs to be gentleness, not frustration, not mockery, not insulting people who... Disagree with us or disagree with our morality. But take your stand with gentleness. So like Ahaz, or like Ahaz should have done, do not refuse the gentle waters of Shiloh. Well, the rest of the passage we won't take as much time on But we see next uh, destruction by the raging river. Finishing out the the thought from verse 6, because they rejoice, look what happens in verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. So if you don't want to live gently, you're going to die at the hands of people who aren't gentle towards you. The King Ahaz lived by the sword. Put his hope not in God protecting Zion, but instead in the king of Assyria. And so God says, because you've refused the gentle waters, I'm going to bring up raging waters. You want raging waters? You want Assyria? You're going to get Assyria. Assyria is going to come. And Assyria here is compared to a, a mighty river that overflows its banks. The Euphrates River would have the, the snow melting from the high mountains then as the snow melted it It would once a year all flow down into the river and the channels of the rivers would all overflow. And so this was the image that Isaiah is giving the people. Just like this river overflows, this king of Assyria is going to go through every city, every nation, and he's going to come, he's going to attack, he's going to take over, he's going to overflow, and verse 8, he's going to sweep on into Judah. He's coming towards you. and it says he will reach even to the neck and fill the land this is describing probably what we're going to read in chapter 37 Assyria does come eventually come and they even come in to, to surround Jerusalem but they don't conquer Jerusalem this image of the water reaching up to the neck Well, that's bad, but it's also good. It won't go over your head. It won't drown you. It'll just go up to your neck, and then it'll stop. And notice, at the end of verse 8, that Isaiah brings up this name again. It will fill your land, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Maybe this is something like a prayer. As if he's saying, it'll fill the breadth of your land. And then he's crying out, oh, Emmanuel. Like we would say something like, oh, Lord, have mercy. Not in taking his name in vain, but in a real way, calling out for Emmanuel to to look upon his land. This is your land, Emmanuel. From that prayer, we we learn that when Assyria comes, they're coming to the land that belongs to Emmanuel. That's why Assyria was only going to come up to the neck and not drown Jerusalem. Because this is Emmanuel's land. This is Zion, the city of God. And now we find out not only does the Lord of hosts protect Zion, But Emmanuel protects them. This baby who would be born hundreds of years later, prophesied about here in chapter 7. This baby is the one who along with the Lord of hosts protects the land. It is his land. We could say that God protects the land for the sake of Emmanuel. Because he wants to give it to Emmanuel. God can't let Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah be destroyed. Because he needs Bethlehem. He needs Bethlehem there. Because Emmanuel needs to be born in Bethlehem. God can't let Judah be destroyed because he needs Joseph. Joseph has to come and... Adopt Emmanuel into his family line. That Emmanuel might be of the house of David, the kingdom of Judah. God protects his people for the sake of Emmanuel. Well, then, in the last part, we have the destruction of the raging river, verses 9 and 10. He says, Be broken you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is a prophecy here in verses 9 and 10 that Assyria is going to be destroyed, and we're going to read a lot more about this in chapter 9 and 10, 11, and following. Assyria is going to be destroyed. The raging river will rush on. It will seem to be overpowering the gentle waters of Shiloh but the raging river will not overtake the gentle waters. He says in verse 9, be broken or maybe a better way to say this is be evil. That's literally what it says. Be evil but People say, well, why would would God tell them to be evil? Well, be evil means do your worst. Assyria, you're known for all of your evil. Go ahead and do your evil. Try everything that you have. Do your worst to the kingdom of Judah. And what's the result? You will be shattered. You can strap on your armor and you'll be shattered. Everything you try will come to nothing. And then we have it again. Why is this? Because of verse 10, the end of verse 10, for God is with us. I think you know after listening to many Christmas sermons in your life, you know the Hebrew for God is with us. It's the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel in chapter 7, 14. Emmanuel here in verse 8 Emmanuel in verse 10. Why will Assyria come to nothing? Because of Emmanuel. And this child, to be born of the virgin, would be a sign to everyone that God is with his people. God will preserve defend his people the ones who look weak meek gentle not living by the sword not fighting with the sword to conquer people in the name of Christ just weak things like coming to church preaching words standing in a pulpit These weak things are what God does to bring about the kingdom of Emmanuel. I've thought before about why there are so many churches called Emmanuel. Emmanuel Baptist is a pretty common name. You don't have a lot of Messiah Baptist church. You know, I've never heard of any great high priest Baptist church. I don't know any Jesus Christ Baptist church. So why Emmanuel Baptist? Well, maybe they just like the way it sounds. Maybe it just sounds good to people. But it's pretty profound. It's pretty symbolic, isn't it? To name your church Emmanuel Baptist Church You put a sign by the side of the road, God is with us, this church. And as people drive by, they might laugh. They might feel sorry. Look at those sorry, sad people. They could be working right They could be getting ahead in the world, making more money. They could be at the lake having fun. They could be driving down to the city. They could be going to the sports games. And there they are, pepping themselves up with this religious, silly talk. And we say, no, God. Is with us. Vanity Fair will pass away. The attacks and persecutions of the world, the mockery and the scorn, it will all come to nothing. They will be shattered. The world will pass away. But God and His Word. And his kingdom will endure forever. The church conquers because God is with us. Satan tries to attack the people of God through Assyria in the 8th century BC. Assyria gets shattered. Satan will try to attack. God's Messiah, the Emmanuel child, by even trying to get him killed. Satan gets the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. And all his plans and all his counsel, he thinks he succeeds. Because this great Emmanuel child that had been prophesied 700 years ago, Satan says, I got him. I've crushed him. I killed him. His counsel comes to nothing. His words do not stand. Satan does his worst. Satan does his evil. And Satan is shattered. When Jesus rises from the dead. Because Jesus pays the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus takes it upon himself. And the son of God does not stay dead. But God raises him from the dead. And Satan is shattered. And so we know that everything else Satan will do from then on will come to nothing. Christ will build his kingdom. Emmanuel will be with us. Satan cannot defeat the church of Christ. And to come back to where we started, this is ultimately why you and I can live gently, defend our hope gently, correct our opponents gently, because even though your little preferences and desires will be frustrated, you, you get angry at the guy who cuts you off because you have somewhere to go at that moment. Yeah, you're going to get frustrated about that, but you don't need to get frustrated about these little silly things. Because at the end of the day, our enemy has been defeated. The best things that could ever happen to you are promised. And those promises are secure. You have a hope of eternal life. You have God with you through Emmanuel. You have a great inheritance. You have God conforming you into the image of his son. And so you can look past the silly minor things that people do to frustrate your plans. God is with you. So may we not despise the gentle waters of Shalom. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you, the Lord of hosts, are with us. We thank you that by your grace and Holy Spirit, we have been born in Zion, that you defend us and help us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith to always believe. Emmanuel, God with us, help us. To live and walk in a manner worthy of what we have been called to. To not despise gentleness, but to be like Jesus in our heart. To receive the blessing of meekness. That we might inherit the earth. Lord, we ask for your help for these things in Jesus' name.